We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello. Today is Saturday, November 14th, and welcome to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me is my co-host, Shane Lachance. Hello, everybody. And from the SOT Editor's Desk, we have with us, joining us in the studio today, Karen Nichols. Hi. And Meg McDonald. Hello. The theme for today's show is... Has the U.S. become the global Fourth Reich, a reference to the Reich of Nazi Germany during World War III? Since 9-11, the U.S.'s covert and overt aggression towards the world and the laws it has enacted domestically point to a remarkable resemblance to what occurred in Germany leading up to the events of World War II. But how has this occurred in the land of freedom and democracy? What were the influences and thinking involved to create such an evil apparatus? And that would ultimately make such a thing possible in the institutions of U.S. government. Well, it's a sprawling subject. Unfortunately, the recent events in the Paris attacks of last night, November, Friday the 13th, have, in a way shocked us yet again, even though you'd think that nothing we see in this world can is capable of shocking us anymore, but it's happened. And um, of course, in a strange kind of a way, it, it ties in directly, very directly to the theme of today's show. So before we get into uh, the history of the U.S. and those things that truly make it tick, Uh, We're just going to talk a little bit about the events of last night and uh, what we know so far. Well, it, um, you know, I I was doing my thing on the internet, and all of a sudden, you know, it came across uh, what it happened 40 minutes ago. Uh, So, in I think at nine, around nine thirty, nine twenty. in the evening in Paris, there was um, several explosions uh, near uh, France's national soccer stadium, the Stade de France, and um, France's president Hollande. Uh, he was in he was in the crowd, and there were uh, two explosions near the stadium, uh, and a half hour later. There was a third one that took place outside of McDonald's, uh, just a couple blocks from the stadium. Then this is a coordinated attack um, because at the same time as the the explosion went off, um, there was a restaurant. There were several restaurants that were also attacked. Um, There was a Cambodian restaurant and uh, La. Carry on bar, 
uh, where attackers shot and killed uh, many people. Um, the the death toll has has varied by reports. Um, the latest figures that I had seen were 153 people that were dead, uh, 200 wounded, and eight to ten uh, attackers were were killed. Um, there had been reports of several who were captured alive. Um, there have been reports of um, there have been many conflicting reports out there. Uh, some have said that. Uh, so uh, let me actually get back to the other attacks um, because it's it's relevant. Um, so after the restaurant attacks, there was also at 9:36 there was a bar attack uh, where at least 18 people were killed on the terrace of a bar, and then there's the Bataclan attack, which was the uh, theater. Uh, where there was a U.S. rock group uh, called Eagles of Death Metal, where they were playing. And initially there were hostage reports, um, but then that led to well over 100 people dead. Uh, there was about 1,500 people in the hall. Uh, and the reports from from that, that loss, you know, there were people who were saying uh, the attackers... They weren't wearing any masks, clean-shaven, and they didn't say anything. Um, No Allah Akbar or anything else. And then later reports, there were uh, people who said that they were shouting things like Allah Akbar, this is for Syria. Um, Fox News also came out with a report saying that one of the suspects that was arrested said, I am from Syria, uh, I'm, I am ISIS, uh, and, you know, this is for Syria. Um, and, you know, the, there's, I, I mentioned that one just because um, in, in the early um, news reports, there was the same, the same sentiment where that was said, like, I am in Syria, uh, but the the ISIS part was only found, as far as I could see, uh, from uh, Fox News saying that. So, um, you know, witnesses described, uh, you know, truly horrific scenes, uh, bodies piled on top of one another, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a bloodbath, and... France shut down uh, transportation. Uh, many people were left in the streets, um, you know, unable to get home. And uh, France also closed its borders. Um, this last fact is also interesting because there had also been reports that they they had this initiative going prior to to the attacks that they were planning on closing the borders anyway. Uh, And it was more of a part of a a test. Um, But it seems that, you know, this, these events uh, allowed 
them to, you know, do it in a very real way right away. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty scary uh, over there. Um, and maybe we'll we'll talk about um, you know just the the impact that this is having. Um, well, it's and it's certainly a huge shock. It is, and what, I just wanted to say one more thing on that. You know, this this um, this chaos uh, and this murder, this you know, these horrible events. Um, this is what the West has brought to so many countries uh, in in so many ways, uh, on a pretty much daily basis. So, you know, we're seeing the manifestations uh, of of the policies that, you know, uh, we've been following. Um, and it is horrendous. And it does, you know, it, it brings it home, I think, for many people. Um, I think perhaps many of our readership, you know, do recognize that these, atroc- these atrocities are happening on a uh, you know every day, and you know it's it's uh you know sometimes it's just you just have a loss for words sometimes um, just at the the carnage and the depravity of it all. You know when you said that, I was thinking about the the, the multiple bombings you hear occurring in Iraq, um, and. Uh, it's been so commonplace over the past few years. Yeah, you see it and you kind of in, gloss over. In markets and, and public places, you know, you read numbers, 40, 60, 100 people losing their lives. Um, I think part of what uh, what makes this happening in the West, um, in Paris in particular, so uh, impactful, of course, is its implications. I mean, Paris is home to one of the largest, uh, rather, France is home to one of the largest populations of uh, Islamic peoples in Europe. Hollande has been in a kind of um, push-pull relationship in, in, with the U.S. and the U.S. kind of uh, pulling his strings in the direction of uh, not supporting the efforts uh put forth by Russia and Syria, uh, being compelled by the U.S. to not sell the Mistral ships to Russia that it was contracted to produce. Um, So, you know, if you didn't know any better, you might look at those events and and use it as a kind of context for this. Uh, But any way you look at it, it's, you know, it's disgusting. And, uh, and, just an incredible loss um, of innocent people designed to kind of create the political facts on the ground that that we're now seeing. Uh, In an article called Francis on the Verge of Blood by Mary Lynn, who was a former 60 Minutes uh, producer, 60 Minutes for those of you who don't know, a very popular uh, news magazine show in the U.S. that's got... uh, pretensions to be objective. In any case, uh, 
in his article, uh, he makes mention of uh, another article, which was uh, put out in the French newspaper called, Is France Ripe for an author- Authoritarian Regime? Which is incredibly... You know, Coincidental. Co- well... You know, it, it, it's, it shows that there's somebody at Le Figaro who was seeing the writing on the wall. Well, and this, was, this, this article was published a day before? Just the day before, yes. Um, and according to the article in uh, Le Figaro, uh, when asked by um, a polling agency, a French polling agency, IFOP, if they would accept a non-democratic form of government to bring necessary reforms to France, 67% of the French said they would opt for a government of non-elected technocrats, which is basically, you know, people giving up any kind of, uh, it's basically a kind of authoritarian um, uh, mindset that we're seeing here. It's like rubber stamping your rights. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Another 40% said they would back a non-elected authoritarian regime. A non-elected. That means, basically, you know, 40% of the French public, what they're saying is, send in a strong man. Send in someone who's going to protect us. Send in the guy who, uh, doesn't matter who, Means anyone could could come in and say I will protect you, and uh, and it's just uh, if you haven't yet written uh, read Laura Knight Yatsik's uh, new focus on Sot, um, there's a fantastic discussion of the authoritarian mindset and exactly uh, those forces that are making uh, or pushing the world in a certain direction right now. So this speaks to that directly, I think. One of the things that makes this poll so remarkable uh, in my mind is, you know, France is historically, you know, one like the kind of one of the really big driving forces for this whole idea of liberty and democracy. It's a part of the the national fabric and consciousness, right? And it's so deeply ingrained in the identity of of the French. And here you have, you know, early in the year, we had Charlie Hebdo, and this is this I think like you know this poll was a result from that. And now when you have this, um, the events from last night. It's it's frightening. Yeah, it's it's really scary to consider um, what life in France is going to be like. A couple of fear and suspicion and hatred of Muslims already through the roof. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to add to it. Well, yeah, and and then and then you have uh, all these people, you know, all over the world. Um, you know, I think not just in France who are already primed to blame uh, the refugees themselves uh, for, you know, these attacks. I mean, the refugees were trying to escape these people. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. 
and 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 then you have this association between um refugees and muslims all you know it, just this blanket um division of us versus them and you know it's it's we see that mentality come alive at different points in history and it's a dark path i think there's um is everyone hearing me okay yes yeah. i can hear you um I think that there's already a story about how the uh, one of the refugee um, centers called the jungle uh, has been set ablaze uh, in France. So that may or may not be a sign of uh, this outward aggression that's going to be unleashed and lashed out upon refugees many of the truest victims in this situation. Well, it's amazing just to see the deflection of, you know, where the responsibility lies in all of this. You know, why are all these refugees fleeing Syria? Well, John Kerry, you know, he he is basically trying to rewrite um, the recent history of the, the underlying cause. Uh, he, he gave a, a speech, I think it was to the National Institute for Peace or, you know, one of those fancy names. Um, and he, he basically, you know, he, he said, he, he redefined the reasons as having nothing to do at all with the United States and Syria. It all had to do with Assad. And, uh, you know, Assad was, was the major villain and Oh, and he, he even, you know, he, one of the really ridiculous things he said out of many, many ridiculous things was that Assad and ISIS had this relationship and that they did business together. They bought, uh, Assad bought oil from, from ISIS and, um, you know, allowed them to exist. It's this psychopathic projection of what's going on of, of yeah. the reality and al- along those lines you you know you have Russia being accused of not really fighting ISIL but just fighting the moderate terrorists which could be you know farthest from the truth um, so the the reality creators of, of Washington uh, you know after the shock of being shown up by Putin's Russia and Syria are now uh, trying to rewrite the narrative again, and they're going full force. Um, and uh, and they're backing it up. You know, they're they're sending their planes to uh, air bases in Turkey. They're sending their um, their their advisors to moderate rebels. They're shoring up support. Uh, probably now from France uh, since this has occurred. Uh, they've ramped up all of their NATO exercises in Spain and Portugal and the Mediterranean. Uh, um, there is just uh, there is just no, you know, all I could think of is in the way of an analogy is a kind of a, a mad dog chasing a car. Never mind that the highway that the car is on is filled with other cars 
and the owner is is whistling for the dog to get back and um and there are all sorts of dangers to cars and the dog itself uh the US is a mad dog um and if that isn't enough it uh this mad dog barks and tries to elicit all the other worst instincts and all the other dogs in the neighborhood to to jump in and chase cars as well um to no good end so i think i think we're going to see some uh some big developments come out of this as you were saying earlier shane you know we already have this uh border closing occurring in uh in france um there will probably be a, an increase in the amount of um, police state surveillance in France. Never mind that uh, that after the events of Charlie Hebdo, uh, this could happen. Uh, it's it's what kind of a how does such a thing how does such a lapse in in the intelligence services of France occur after after such an event of, as Charlie Hebdo? I don't know. Um, but it did, and and we know that it's facilitating um, quite a lot. Well, apparently in France, you know, a lot of there's when you if you turn on the radio and you know listen to some of the commentators, they're talking about you know this need to give up this frivolous freedom that they have in order to have security. In order to have you know this this uh, protection from attack, um, and you know that that type of mentality is spreading, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's very worrisome uh, just to see a country go in this direction when when things like this happen, and you know, we can speak firsthand about this because, you know, we saw and and lived through the same thing in the United States after 9-11. Just the incredible change in public opinion, public perception about, you know, these ideas. It's it's such an ironic thing that uh, Americans say, oh, yeah, we, you know, we have our freedom, we, we love our freedom, and then, yes, take our freedom away, take our freedom away. You know, it's uh, it's ridiculous. Well, in the context of, of all of that, um, Karen, you, you read it this morning of a blogger's comment. Yeah, it was uh, a blog poster who was commenting on the, the events in, in France. Mm-hmm. And she said, these things should not be happening to anyone, anywhere. Not to people going out to eat on Friday night in Paris. Not to people catching the metro in London or Madrid. Not to people in New York City. Not Mumbai. Not Syria. Not Gaza. Not to universities in the United States. Not to people getting on a plane to go or come back from their vacation. This is so wrong on so many levels. It's inexcusable. Think of it, the sheer shamelessness, boldness of going around, or the cyclists at the top sending their robotic stooges around to do their job, killing all kinds of people randomly, 
just because a leader started to be more friendly with Russia or because the nation is not following the official line, it's ridiculous, totally inhumane, utterly inequal. I can't believe in one lifetime I have seen so many senseless attacks on real people. I can't believe it is becoming the norm. And we are all getting used to seeing this kind of shit. And we never see the real culprits real culprits pay for it. They always get away. And they barely started showering us with the propaganda yet. And all the BS they will be saying tomorrow, the aftermath, the closing down and fencing in and the scapegoating of other innocent people. Don't accept it. It is unacceptable to me. And I am so sorry for the terror people are going through, all the pain for losing their loved ones. And I'm so pissed off at the that the perpetrators, damn it, why don't the comments just ever come when you want them to? I, I have to say, uh, here, here to this blogger, I totally agree with these statements. Mm -hmm. I too. Ms. Well, spot on. Well, I didn't have the words, you know, it's like you hear someone rant like that and really express themselves and sometimes these events just leave me speechless. It was, it was very refreshing to, to read it capture it in that way and if you're listening in and you have any thoughts or feelings about what's occurred or anything else on the show uh, just a reminder the number is 718-508-9499 you know sometimes it takes a little while to metabolize the shock of, of uh, such a thing uh, especially when you know what it points to who benefits, uh, the awfulness of it, uh, the gravity of it. Um, but certainly, you know, in some respects, we're, we're kind of lucky here at the truth perspective because, uh, you know, it's, it's news, but it's also uh, difficult to know and difficult to see. And uh, especially when you, um, when you understand what it's a part of and what its ramifications are and what it is probably leading to. And on that note, I think we have a caller. So let's take that. Hello, caller. It's Stephen. Yeah, this is Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Yes. Uh, Welcome yes, to the show. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is uh, very much uh horrific events, um, and, it, and it, it definitely appears that, that these were coordinated to create as much shock value to the world and the population of France, you know, as possible, and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's really weird, and, uh, you know, I would say this, um, I've been doing a lot of research. I wrote, I wrote my first article and submitted it to uh, Syrian Perspective uh, a few days ago. And uh, the first time I've ever done an article and, and presented my what I have to say publicly. And, uh, you know, what, but what I'm noticing as I research uh, how the Syrian war developed in, in Libya is that um, there's a huge investment in, in confusing narratives 
having to do with uh, these world events. And um, it's across the board from uh, noted left progressive sources of media to the right. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this adheres in the case of Turkey, in the case of France. So we're giving these narratives um, about, like, say, how uh, what happened in Syria. And then um, the people that, that hate, you know, that, that support the aggression against Syria, they, they have this idea that, oh, these were peaceful protests and, uh, you know, six months of peaceful protests and blah, blah, blah. Well, then they can completely um, eliminate from their narrative very facts, historical facts, that there were foreign powers that, that fueled the violence. And, um, and then the, the gas. And um, I've heard on uh, left, left luminaries that I once uh, respected, you know, allow interview people that make these claims, these definitive claims that uh, the Syrian government did these gas attacks. And I'm just shocked as I watch this because these were sources, you know, in the 1990s and then, you know, leading up to the Iraq war. I'm like, wow, these people are like, you know, they're, they're, they're saying it straight. But then I'm watching how they allow people come on and, and confuse the narrative. And I think that that is a, a definite goal among the power elites um, is to uh, not not allow a clear, forceful narrative that describes what's happened, what is happening. And so people are left with these ideas of, oh, Assad's a monster. You know, so anything that you have to say, like, hey, you know, wait a minute and all that, once this meme is in their heads that, oh, Assad's a monster – then anything that you have to say as far as presenting a rational argument to um, to have people be skeptical toward the dominant imperialist narrative, it's almost uh, almost impossible to interject and correct and, and, and at least um, help people amend their views on things. So you know what I'm seeing uh, right now with respect to France is it's, it's a historical fact that France in Hollande has been pumping weapons into Syria to overthrow the government. And this is, um, and these weapons are landing in the hands of al-Nusra Front and other uh, radical jihadist groups, and a lot of these people are mercenaries. And um, Saudi Arabia is involved in it. Turkey has been um, allowing the... Uh, the entry into Syria of these fighters and then allowing the exit, allowing supply lines toward uh, fueling this terror. And, uh, but, but what's really fascinating is that when people that are supposed to be experts comment on this, they don't even point up the fact that, for example, Hollande and the French government have been giving weapons that fuel terror inside of Syria. And, um, when that, when that core fact is eliminated from the narrative or the fact that the United States does the same thing and they're illegally doing this and they're the demanding that, you know, the leader of the government, uh, Bashar Assad, step down, it's so illegitimate and smarmy, their, their narration, but it's, it's so ubiquitous 
that even people that consider themselves critical of the government and the progressive left, they kind of accept the dominant um, facts on the ground of U.S. involvement, and they don't even comment on it or, um, you know, or, or declaim it. And um, that's what makes this situation such a, a tough nut to crack is that um, the, the cloudiness, the, uh, the lack of clarity in the core narratives, and, um, and then when, 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 it, when it encompasses to a point here in the United States where people that are ostensibly present themselves as historically anti-war, when they actually contribute to the cloudiness of the, uh, the narration and the timelines and all of that, and they present, you know, Assad is the dictator, you know, a monster. And, you know, it, it's, it's, I think that that's the goal of the imperialist uh, power brokers that we, we uh, live under is to, is, as long as you can make it so cloudy that the, the people would, that would be compelled to march in the streets, to organize, to stop the aggression, as long as it's so cloudy that they're so confused that they can't even get up their behind and, and organize in solidarity with other people toward that goal, um, they, that's how they went. Well, I'm, yeah, uh, you, you said quite a lot there, Stephen, uh, and I'm in agreement. If there's one message that um, needs to be penetrated in the, in the minds and awareness of people in the West, uh, it's that the U.S. Uh, is the purveyor of, of evil in this whole situation. It all traces back to the U.S., um, the war on terror uh, is is a big con. Uh, the thing about ISIS in particular uh, being the U.S. proxy force in uh, attempting to overthrow Assad and um, and the hired mercenaries uh, that overthrew and and destroyed Libya and uh, and partially destroyed Iraq. It's it's such an it's such an unimaginably big undertaking, and yet it's there. And yet we have all of the data that points to how it serves the U.S. agenda. And um, so that's one big piece of the puzzle that, that people uh, have not yet gotten and that they need to understand. Well, it's omitted from the media. It's like 100% of Middle East problems was created by the U.S., mm-hmm. 100%. And it's omitted completely by the media. We know we, we created the refugee crisis, and now, you know, they don't even talk about it. They don't yeah. talk about our role. You you hear all these news uh, or just these historical, uh, you know, you don't want to say facts because they're not facts, but the, these lines that are repeated that oh, these countries have been fighting for millennia, and that that's a lie. It's a complete lie. The U.S. Uh, has instigated and created uh, this crisis, these crises, uh, time and time again, and you know it, it's it is from Western influence, uh, the division between peoples, uh, the the uh, influence over you know these Western Arab nations, um, you know under these really psychopathic governments. Um, that you know is creating these situations and and allowing them to continue and you know and and you see the same thing in the EU 
if France and uh, Germany, if they weren't following the U.S. and were was doing what's right, you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been following these ridiculous sanctions that have caused extreme harm to their economy. Uh, and then to have this natural uh, consequence, refugees fleeing into you know their countries, you know, it all stems back to uh, them following the U.S. Mm-hmm. and and their policies, and, and it's 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 ridiculous. Well, even General Wesley Clark, who you know was connected with the Pentagon, was told by the Pentagon that the U.S. was going to take out seven. Middle East countries in the next five years, and those were Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. So you know, and he said, had there been no oil there, it would be like Africa. Nobody's threatening to intervene in Africa. So until they find gold or oil in Africa, well, until they find something worth taking, there's something worth taking in these in these countries, and you know, they're on the they're on the docket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can I say? Can I say? Make one last point. Sure. Can I make another point? Okay. You know, um, what I find, uh, well, like, like I said, you know, I was a huge fan of like Noam Chomsky, and I cut my anti-imperialist teeth in the '90s. You know, reading this, you know, at a at an older date than a lot of other people, you know, like past 26, and I'm like, wow, this is like this guy's a hero and. And then when you when you see some of your heroes and the other people that are aligned with your hero, um, basically give interviews to people that just disseminate lies. Um, and I've seen this like over and over. I'm not going to say names right here, but man, I'm just like these people. Man, you, you should have like more skepticism. But then they're so weak, and they just allow the promulgation of lies that are going to uh, you know, just so confusion, and um, it's just it, it's amazing. I'm, I'm I'm just frankly still like flabbergasted from it. But I would say one thing before I hang up. I'm very interested in what the United States is and what their game plan is moving forward because what I think is going to be happening is that Turkey's definitely. I harbored suspicions that Turkey would be like amenable to working with. Uh, with Russia and all that, but it's totally, uh, this guy is so, demo, he's such a, uh egomaniac, this uh, Erdogan. Mm-hmm. But what's, yeah. what I think is the goal right now is to work with Turkey. Um, France will be part of it too. You know, they want to show themselves as the heroes, you know, at um, helping the Kurds, you know, go to, to um, some of these cities and conquer ISIS. So they want to snatch back the narrative right now, and they think they can with respect to uh, the United States being this heroic force against this Islamic State. And um, even though they've been like they've let the Islamic State spread, they've used the Islamic State to help weaken the Syrian government. That's been their game plan, and also machinations inside of uh, Iraq. And um, so right now, that, that these in the uh, in the you know in the wake of these terrorist attacks in France, you know it seems like their game plan is to get heavily involved in in, in this part, portion of Syria, and then set up a permanent base there, 
that they will use to project power, and I mean the United States. And uh, I think it's a, uh, I, I think it's a doomed strategy. But um, Russia has to be very, very careful right now uh, because they've got to kind of play along with the game that the United States is actually fighting the Islamic State, which is actually an absurdity. And uh, But the populations of our – I'm going to hang up after this – but the populations of Europe and the United States, we've kind of been hypnotized to believe that we're really – not that we're really trying to fight this Islamic State force, when in actual fact, these powers have used the Islamic State, helped publicize it for their own really cynical geopolitical purposes of domination in the region. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. anyway, watch, watch what the United States is going to try to do to set a foothold there and then challenge, uh, uh, you know, destroy the Syrian state and challenge uh, the uh, establishment and the projection of Russian power in the region. And um, I think that's a key point just to, to focus on. But anyway, mm-hmm. hey, thank you all. I, I, I really that's... appreciate it, and I, lo- I look forward to listening to the rest of your show. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, thanks Stephen. Bye, Stephen. Appreciate Yeah, I think uh, Stephen's comments were you know, spot on there, and uh, particularly in regards to Turkey, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing uh, the next G20 summit in, in a few days, and it's all going to be uh, centered around Syria. So, you know, what's happening or what happened in France last night will certainly uh, be a driving force a um uh an event to further the aims of you know the US so called coalition in Syria. So, you know, we'll uh, we'll certainly be paying attention, close attention to um what happens um you know during those uh those talks. I think one of the things that you might want to be able to think about is that you know especially in the past couple of days in France is that the sacrifice the sacrifice of the few to control the many and I think that's you know, that's that's how this goes it went this way in 911 you know they all the different kinds of, of reforms and things that the American people were willing to put up with and and, and adopt all came about sacrifices those lives. So they've done it. They've, you know, perhaps they've done something like this again, or perhaps this, these are all independent things that have come together. Um, we just don't know. But it it definitely is, um, you know, makes people tighten their belts and, and look over their shoulder and, and changes the landscape. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's definitely a, a, um, Whoever's responsible, uh, you know, it, it, there's a kind of it, it's a it's a form of mind control that's being imposed on the people of France, on the governments of Europe, uh, on the people of the world. You know, events like these, um, unless you have a body of of uh, knowledge regarding um, what's involved geopolitically, 
uh, and what the U.S. is is striving for, um, along with some governments in Europe. Uh, you know, you just don't see where where it fits in, and you uh, you become subject and uh, and kind of like a machine. You know, you're just in re- in a kind of reaction mode uh, to all of these events. Well, I I remember. You know, the days after 9-11 and, um, you know, I had family in, in New York and, you know, there, while these events are so traumatic and awful, there is the possibility for humanity to rise up and people for kind of come together. Uh, oftentimes, and as we saw with 9-11, you know, that trauma is used against us. Um, but I, I, I did want to mention just one decent story that came out of last night. Uh, in the beginning of the show, I mentioned how, you know, all the public transport was shut down. A lot of people were stranded. Well, one of the things that uh, people in the area did was there was a uh, social media campaign called uh, Port Overt which uh, means uh, open doors. So people open their doors to, you know, complete strangers who are stranded during a time when they didn't know if, you know, some terrorist was out and seeking uh, help. So that kind of humanity is is what really needs to be um, amplified, Um Unfortunately, the strength of the media is so strong that we are in this vulnerable state and we are guided, you know, by the by the principles of the government and, uh, you know, and it's not, um, that doesn't typically end up in a, uh, a good way, but. Um, That's very interesting, actually, because. You know, in, in these events that uh, are designed to, to close doors, yeah. Uh, yeah, you have a percentage of people who are thinking enough of the victims, uh, mm. people who are running out in the streets, uh, frightened, traumatized by the by the uh, the shootings and the grenades and and the massacre, and uh, and offering uh, compassion, and and basically. It occurs to them that someone is in pain, and they're, um, as you're saying, opening their doors. And uh, and I agree. Um, yeah. They kind of. And I'm just. I was thinking about the poll you talked about earlier, about French people being ready for an authoritarian um, type governance, and that kind of flies in the face of that. Mm-hmm. That they would open their doors to complete strangers without being asked or told. So makes me wonder what questions are on those polls <laughs> and if it was truly an accurate reflection of the French people. It made me wonder that. Well, it, I think it also goes to the, the human psyche. I mean, you, you you either can go to a place of terror and shut your doors and lock them and, and you know, hide in your closet, or you, you go the other direction out of, you know, up to components within you. And uh, obviously there are a couple kinds of people. 
that um, you know go to those those two extremes. And, and there's the people who are just shell shocked and are right in the middle and have no clue at all. Dichotomy, um, this polarization, uh, seems to be what's happening on a macro scale. You have people waking up to the reality of planet Earth in this day and age all the time and, and discovering sought and other alternative news and uh, and finding answers and truth for the questions that they've had. Uh, and then you have others who are, who are disintegrating, who are uh, falling into the trap that's been laid for them um, by the many forces at work uh, that have thought this out, uh, who understand human psychology, uh, and who prey on the weakness and ignorance of uh, the vast majority of people, or so it seems. Well, the only, you know, and then the only way that the people who have woken up can, you know, combat this is to is to bond together and formulate their own plan because, you know, it's obviously if the, if the diabolical plans are already in place, you know, it, they only unfold at certain times in certain ways um there's you know we're not getting the game plan <laughs> we we don't have a heads up on on what this is and can can counteract it before it happens it's it's got to be something that that you know is we we feel within us and and have our safeguards within us but then be able to to figure out how to you know balance this out well, I think uh, this, this issue speaks to the, the topic of today's show, which is, you know, about the United States as the global Fourth Reich. And when we think of uh, Nazi Germany and the evils that came of it and, you know, what we saw happen within Germany, um it's it's a it's a really good case study for uh that process of polarization uh on a macro scale on a nationwide scale however when you look at the united states um and its influence over the world and just the evils that it's that it's uh that it's done and just the massiveness you know, there's there is a um, there's a difference and a distinction I think that uh, could be covered or uh, dissected a bit because you know what we saw in Nazi Germany was so overt and you know everything was happening uh, or many things were happening you know within uh, the, the country itself. Um, you know, the camps and uh, the, the the fervor and you know it was very it was all very concentrated as in a lab and the United States actions you know it's uh, it's spread over many many years you know it's not like we have uh, one Hitler that is driving uh, everything um, there's a whole so, gaggle of Hitlers. There's there's a gaggle and there's a history of them too. You know, and not just modern day, but you know, from past. I mean, when you look at just the development of the United States, um, which we may get into in a little bit, it's it's staggering. 
um, to see just the massive, massive evil that we've done over centuries and on such a widespread scale. You know, it's not just about looking at what's happening domestically, domestically. And I think that's where you know many people kind of go off course. Oh, the United States could never be Nazi Germany. You know, uh, look look at what they did and. People in America are so focused on uh, their own bubble, their own world, uh, what's happening inside the United States. Uh, you know, uh, the Supreme Court passes uh, gay marriage, so that means we are noble people. Um, you know, we, we look at these very isolated things and think that that's pretty much all there is to it. And what people are looking uh, overseas to, you know, our, our foreign policies. You know, when you look at all the um, mainstream news and even many of popular alternative media, um, you know, they're, they're not talking about what's happening overseas. We don't look at what we're doing over there. And it's it's really ridiculous because the United States empire isn't just within the U.S. It expand it's expand it's it's all over. I mean, we have um, that we know of uh, close to a thousand military bases uh, in other countries. And then there's all the I'm sure you know all the secret ones we don't know about. Um, and and NATO. I mean, it, you know, this is the key um, alliances, if you want to call it that. I, I, I don't, don't really care for that word because, you know, it's it's essentially uh, using Europe uh, in ways that is extremely damaging for Europe. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of bring that topic up as a intro to our, our topic. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when we were discussing this before the show, uh, just considering, um, based on you know the fruits of the U.S. in the past fifteen years, but even decades past, uh, there is an ideology uh, that is um, there at its uh, at its root, uh, a pathological ideology. Um, and uh, we're going to get into that in just a moment. It looks like we have another caller, Yay. so we're going to take that, and here we go. Hello, caller. Are you there? Oh, okay. Might have somebody just listening. Yes. So, um, as we were saying, you know, there there is this uh, at at the base of the way that the U.S. functions, this uh, ideology um, that isn't um, symbolized or exemplified or, or uh, in your face in the way that a swastika is or a zig hail. Uh, it doesn't have um, a single charismatic leader uh, that keeps people in the thrall uh, and the fervor of Nazism uh, or, or the ideology that's prevalent in the U.S. today. It's invisible. Uh, it's ubiquitous. And there are many ways that uh, that this has come about. 
Um, I have to disagree just a little bit with that because with the National Defense Authorization Act um, and the countless executive orders Obama has signed, he's essentially made himself the supreme dictator with the complete power over the people. And I, th- I think we have to, you know, it's, it's, it was slow. It was, you know, deliberate. It's a little bit insidious. Um, but still, when you, when, you, when you look at it just as, as a capsule, there, there it is. There's, there's the President of the United States with all this authority that, that doesn't have to go through you know, Congress, doesn't have to go through the people, doesn't have to go through the Supreme Court. It's just, you know, he has it in his hands to use it any time he wants. Well, just to qualify what I said, I, I meant that more in terms of a... Uh, a Fuhrer or, or someone that people pledge their undying allegiance to in an obvious way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know about NDAA and the other laws that Obama has been uh, pushing through, uh, accruing powers to himself. But most people have no clue. Yeah. Uh, this is, um, and I don't think he would ever use it for a nefarious reason. Exactly. Yes. He might be bad. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't like the way he, uh, you know, advocates this or that progressive policy, and he's black, but, you know, he would never, you know, do, he would never implement it in, in any way that would resemble a Nazi Germany. Until he does. Until he does. And yeah. and, and we will see it in our time. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we, are, we are seeing it in our time. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to see just this... Uh, denial of reality around us um, every single day you know if you read SOT and you look at society's child there's another one two three horrific um, police abuse stories that are there every day and you know it's just mounting when you, when you read these it's 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 awful awful stuff and you know, I have to think that you know, even the Nazi Gestapo um, wasn't even as pervasive as what the United States police force has become in, in terms of you know the atrocities that they're committing. Um, you know, the the comparison is there. You know, it, the the Gestapo had this ideology that they that that was very linked. Um, to Nazism, but it's in America. It's not looked at that way because you know the the police are just the police, and you know it's not like there's some uh, overt ideology behind them. But there is this corrupting force that we see. Yeah, and it, the the role was the same. They were designed to impart fear. They were designed to you know beat dissidents. Um, they were designed to uh, be the ones you would go report to your nigger neighbor on. I mean, the role is the same. Our police and the Gestapo, there's not much difference at all. Maybe the level of violence, I don't know about what the Gestapo did, but the role is the same. They are the enforcers of the... And Meg, you, you were looking into definitions of totalitarianism, yes. um, which we find a lot of parallels to. Absolutely, and... Um, I can't pronounce her last name very well, so you might have to do it for me. Hannah 
Arendt. Arendt, yes. Um, she wrote a book um, called The Origins of Totalitarianism. And um, the definition itself could probably be quite longer, um, but just for brevity, um, I'll read you what we put together here. Um, that totalitarianism is a ruthless, brutal form of political tyranny whose ambitions are for world domination at any cost. And it relies on the mass support of the people, and it gains that support by disseminating propaganda via the media and other forms of mass communication. It crushes what and whoever stands in its way by any means of terror, and it leads to a total reconstruction of society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> perfect understanding what we're seeing, I think. Yeah. Um, and on that note, we do have a caller. So we're going to take that. Hello, Hello hi, what's your name? Corey from North from? Carolina. I'm sorry, hi, this is Corey, Corey from North Carolina. Hey, Corey. everybody. Hey, thank hi, you Corey. so much for the show. This is just such Thanks a difficult topic to, to be uh, going through, to see this happening on the world stage. I just can't imagine the amount of fear and grief and everything that's going through Europe, and I can't imagine a worse situation with all the immigrants and refugees for it to happen in. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it seems like a kind of a perfect storm, huh? Yeah, that's really... uh, Just listen to your comments about the uh, totalitarianism and using fear to crush and to reshape society. That's what it looks like is happening in Europe, and it just makes your heart sink so low to know so many people are, uh, are getting caught up in all the fear and hatred. It's awful. It's really awful. So I appreciate you uh, putting this show together and really pointing out all the, the truth well, thanks, Corey. Um, did you want to add anything to that today? or? Well, yeah, I was just thinking from? about, do you think that this is the beginning to this whole situation? Because I saw a news report that said terrorists were heading to Belgium. At least that's what the media was saying, that they had uh, the terrorists that were maybe responsible were being moved to, uh, to Belgium. Well, I had read that um, they thought some of them had come from Belgium, um, but through Brussels, they came through Brussels, I think. There were three of them, I think. That they yeah, I mean, this whole situation, it just, you know, it gives you that gut feeling of something just really ominous going on. And and with all of the, the fear about the the immigration and the Islamicization, or however you say that, of, of Europe, it's just... It makes you sick. It's it's disgusting. And so, I mean, like the quote you had in the very beginning of the show, that this shouldn't be happening to anyone. I mean, that's just the bottom line. But, I mean, it's it shouldn't be happening to anyone. It shouldn't be happening to uh, the people in the restaurants. It shouldn't be happening at the at football stadiums. And it's obviously all about generating fear and chaos by whether it's these uh, terrorists just rogue terrorists or whoever could be behind the scenes trying to pull this stuff together. It's just, it's disgusting, and I wish it would stop. I really do. We do. So too, thank Corey. you for the show. Well, That's it, all I have to say. Well, Corey, uh, no, I, I think you know it's a good question of you know what what are we going to be seeing, uh, particularly in Europe, um, you know when we think about. The, the rise of, of Nazi Germany and, you know, how we were talking about a little earlier, just, you know, how it was very localized. Um, and with the United States, 
it's it's so much more expansive. And you know, will we be seeing um, you know some of the refugee camps be turned into more like concentration camps? And exactly. you know, I think we are already seeing you know some evidence of this um, with just some of the horrific human abuses. Um, going on in, in, in some of these camps and, you know, just people are treated, being treated just completely like animals, like they're not human beings. They're um, already refugees at the Bruchenwald camp in Germany already. Oh. And this this is giving rise to a lot of, you know, very nationalist uh, type sentiment um, in, in many European countries, you know, and, and we're also seeing it's not just France that's closing their borders. Um, in the news today, there's Poland. Poland is saying, yep, you know, we're, we're going to be doing the same thing. We're closing our borders. So it is like this lockdown, this clampdown, and you know, it's not just isolated uh, in one country. It's much more expansive, and that's what makes it uh, you know, extremely dangerous and frightening. It's heinous. It really is. Well, it, it, really, it is we... so heinous. Just, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just thinking about, you know, what the what the Syrian people went through to cause them to be refugees was this level of of senseless violence perpetrated against them and their communities, and so they had to flee. And it I means because Syria was destabilized, and they were trying to balkanize it, you know, divide it up like they had Iraq. And now you see the same situation going on in um, in Europe using the using the momentum created in the Middle East. Now there's all of this destabilization going on in Europe, and it's just, it's really stunning. It's beyond stunning to think that just a month ago, um, Russia was, was assisting in Syria and making sure that Syria was able to retain its sovereignty. And now we are seeing a, a situation where that's, it doesn't seem like that same dynamic can play out because Europe is so invested in this partnership with their very, with their worst enemy, that's what my uh, that's what my interpretation is, but I appreciate your time, y'all, and I uh, I'm really loving the show. Keep up the great work. All right, thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thank you, everybody. Uh, <laughs> you know what Corey was saying reminded me of a, another parallel uh, that we're seeing um, between World War II and uh, when. Uh, Jews and other minorities were rounded up, um, but especially uh, many Jews and, and those considered undesirable in Germany were um, had their citizenship reduced or taken away. And um, so basically they were uh, kind of disenfranchised or they, they had no rights, they had no nationality. They were completely at the mercy of wherever they were, wherever they were directed to or, or manipulated to go. They um, weren't human. No. They, well, yeah, they were dehumanized, but, mm-hmm. but uh, stripped of, of any legal, uh, they were at the mercy of wherever they went. Um, but uh, getting back to World War II for a moment, um, because...
I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting try to kill it all away but I remember everything what have I become my sweetest friend everyone I know goes away in the air and you could have it all
during and after World War II. Um, when the U.S. defeated uh, the Nazi and Axis powers... When, when Russia defeated them? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. An important <laughs> distinction, and we're going to get to that, too. Uh, what the U.S. did was it looked at all of these human resources um, that it had available to them, right, because the Nazis were ostensibly on the run, and they said, hmm, let's take in some of these people and and use their incredible skills uh, that they've developed in creating the Nazi war machine and use it ourselves. So out of this, uh, you had projects such as uh, Operation Paperclip and MKUltra, uh, these were basically um, the U.S.'s attempt to bring in uh, all those experts uh, in rocket technology, uh, weapon, weaponry, um, and not to mention uh, mind control. Um, so you had folks like Alan Dulles, uh, who was the, um, the first CIA chief, already working for intelligence in the U.S., uh, who was creating these rat lines or, or uh, means of escape uh, of Nazis during World War II um, and taking under his wing, um, uh, allowing uh, Gellin, uh, one of them, to continue his intelligence work, uh, who's a Nazi, in Europe. Um, he also brought people into the U.S. specifically with a mind to uh, allow them to continue their work as Nazis. Um, the Nazis used all kinds of uh, mind control methods and means of experimentation during World War II. And you had a guy like Alan Dulles, who was in a position of power, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about him uh, in, in a little while, and they were basically brain-draining uh, Nazis to create a, uh, a more you know, improved, if you can call it that, um, intelligence apparatus and military-industrial complex for national security purposes. Is it, is it accurate to say that um, the CIA... Now, I think when the CIA wasn't the CIA from the start, so there was another organization that was founded. The OSS. The OSS. And that was essentially made up from these Nazi programs. Okay. Well, OSS was during the war. So, uh, and it has... DEA, it branched out to the NSA. Uh, these were all agencies that looked at what the Nazis had done with the IBM uh, punch cards, for instance, keeping tabs on people, uh, you know, categorizing them, and along those lines, thinking about uh, how they can keep tabs on uh, citizens. I mean, uh, the idea was, well, we. After this Nazi threat, we have to protect 
the U.S. from um, from Soviet Russia, right? Because the Cold War was being drummed up soon after World War II. Uh, came this kind of this national security state that uh, that began to turn inward on itself. It's it's uh, pretty amazing to see. There's just this line. Uh, this consistent line, you know, against Russia. I'm sure, you know, many of the Cold Warriors then, you know, had this background uh, of of seeing, or what were to become these Cold Warriors, that, you know, they saw what Russia did uh, against Nazi Germany and, you know, saw that they were a threat to their basically their domination plans, their, their world domination plans. Yeah, and uh and so, you know, this this military industrial complex, these guys who uh who built industry literally to fight uh the Nazis during World War Two, um realized out of this shit, there's a lot of money to be made in arms. There's a lot of money to be made in a security apparatus. And so, you know, let's continue on in that vein. And uh, and now that we have Russia as the enemy, uh, we can justify spending and, and paying for protection uh, from this new enemy. But um, there's a book called Rise of the Fourth Reich. It's written by Jim Mars, uh, who's written quite a number of other books on the topic of uh, secret societies, and, um, and I just want to check real quick: can uh, the chatter still still hear us? They can just let us know. They did. Not my kind. Thanks, guys. So yeah, thanks. Well. So we were talking a little bit before about how the U.S. has um, had this program called MKUltra, which was all about mind control. Uh, folks, if you've never seen um, if you've never seen the video "Evidence of Revision," uh, it's fantastic. It, it discusses a lot of this in some detail. Um, not so much the Nazi element, but but the program itself. Um, but uh, this is definitely something the Nazis were researching and thinking about, uh, not only against state enemies, but uh, but about controlling their own people and the people that they had um, that they wanted killed. Uh, so this is just a portion from the rise of the Fourth Reich that I'd like to read. Um, and Mars begins. Numerous websites and periodicals have carried the accusation that sodium fluoride was placed in the drinking water of Nazi concentration camps to keep inmates pacified and susceptible to external control. Such use of fluoridation by the Nazis to dull the senses of prisoners was described by Charles Elliot Perkins, a prominent U.S. industrial chemist whom the U.S. government sent to help reconstruct the IG Farben chemical plants in Germany at the end of the war. In a 1954 letter to the Lee Foundation for Nutritional Research, Perkins stated, 
The German chemists worked out a very ingenious and far-reaching plan of mass control that was submitted to and adopted by the German general staff. This plan was to control the population of any given area through drinking water supply. In this scheme of mass control, sodium fluoride occupied a prominent place. However, and I want to make this very definite and positive, the real reason behind water fluoridation is not to benefit children's teeth. This is what we've all kind of grown up thinking about, right? MFP, maximum fluoride protection. These are the commercials I, I grew up watching. The real purpose behind water fluoridation is to reduce the resistance of the masses to domination and control and loss of liberty. Repeated doses of infinitesimal amounts of fluorine will still will in time gradually reduce the individual's power to resist domination by slowly poisoning and narcotizing this area of the brain tissue and make him submissive to the will of those who wish to govern him. I was told of this entire scheme by a German chemist who was an official of the great Farben chemical industries and was prominent in the Nazi movement at the time. I say this with all the earnestness and sincerity of a scientist who has spent nearly 20 years research into the chemistry, biochemistry, physiology, and pathology of fluorine. Any person who drinks artificially fluoridated water for a period of one year or more will never again be the same person, mentally or physically. And uh, Mars goes on to say, a Christian Science Monitor survey in 1954 showed that 79 of the 81 Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, medicine, and, and physiology declined to endorse water fluoridation. Yet today, two-thirds of all municipal water and most bottled water in the United States has sodium fluoride, which has long been used as a rat poison. Most people do not realize that fluoride is a key ingredient in Prozac and many other psychotropic drugs. Prozac, whose scientific name is fluoxetine, is 94% fluoride. More than 21 million prescriptions for fluoxetine were filled in the United States in 2006, making it one of the most prescribed antidepressants. So it's also in baby water, toothpaste, mouth rinses, you name it. You can go to the store and buy a gallon of water for babies that's fluoridated. Yeah, it's sickening to see that when you go to the grocery store. Like these like cute little babies on there with these pink, you know, labels and yeah. How about you give your your baby some toxic chemical and you know, when you see the same thing with uh, you mentioned Prozac it's really baffling to to see the number of people who are so heavily medicated, over medicated, often having to do with you know it, it's not it's not actually treating the underlying symptoms, and you know what you get is this population that is just subdued and easily controlled. Now, this is just one element too. I mean, this is one. Just one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not even factoring in human psychology and exactly. biases. And, right. Yeah. Do you want something today? The Detroit News recently proposed putting contraceptives 
into the drinking water in Michigan because the state has become a breeding ground for for poverty. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can we say eugenics? (laughs) Can we say don't drink the water? (laughs) Now, like we were saying, um, you know, the, the security state, the national security state, the military industrial complex, uh, the banking interests, all of these uh, totalitarian fascist uh, strains of thinking and policy uh, that was in existence long before Nazi Germany ever came to the fore. Um, it, it was all there. And, uh, and yet some of these guys, you know, who knew, must have known uh, what fluoride would do, managed to um, make this a kind of national policy, yeah. uh, among other things. Um, you know, it, it's not only, there's not only uh, profit involved here, I don't think, although that, that's got to be... I think it's derived from petroleum. Um, there's a video on thought, I don't remember the specifics, but I think it is derived from petroleum, and um, they searched around for organizations to conduct studies to find some use for it. And they found someone to falsify a study that said it actually protected the teeth, and it ter- turns out it doesn't. It destroys teeth. Well, the, the fluoride that's put in water is an industrial byproduct. And I don't know what the byproduct is from. It may be oil or, or, or whatever it else may, might come from. But the thing is, yeah, it's this industrial chemical. And it's not an exact thing as, you know, this chemical uh, fluoride that the dentist gives you. Uh, although, you know, there may be some of the same things that, you know, happen to the brain uh, with both. But the thing that's being put in uh, it's, it's this garbage that is used to, you know, make some money for 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 these companies and bonus, you know, get the um, population too. I mean, I remember back when I was a kid, the fluoride had come out, and you know, nobody knew what it was. We all believed what they told us it was going to do. Um, you know, but there just there just was no information. Right. Well, um, you know, it, it's just uh, like you're saying, Shane, before, it's just one single thing, you know, whether it, whether it was uh, just for profit or whether uh, someone at some high level knew what it was before during uh, World War II in the camps. Um, either way, it, it's created a, no, uh, a nation of zombies. Uh, to some degree, um, and you do have people finally, five, six, seven decades later, in various places speaking out about it, and actually getting, and I think Canada too, actually uh, having uh, the flow uh, no longer being into their water treatment systems. Um, so that's encouraging. But my God, uh, how much has it already affected? Uh, people up until now, we don't know. Uh, well, it's you know you look at just the layers upon layers 
of ways that you know people's brains turn to mush, and you know you have fluoride, and then you have the USDA advocating dietary guidelines destroy people's increases uh, their or decreases their ability to respond to stress. Then you have these pathological um, spellbinders who cast out their declarations, and when people accept these lies, that also degrades the brain. I mean, you have so many things going on here, layer after layer after layer, and, you know, it's so frustrating to see uh, the masses of people accept the lies, but, man, there's so much uh, going against uh, just the, the, the pop, the the masses. Yeah. And and then yeah, you have the thing just our own cognitive biases that we innately have. And man, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh it, it's it's quite a comprehensive uh blanket of, you know, techniques and even uh that are um used and and, and abused. Uh, and you know, it does take, uh, I think, you know, a lot of uh, uh, self-work and identification of you know what's going on to be able to overcome these things. But the good news is, you know, we can identify these things, we can explore these things, uh, and um, you know, with that spark of curiosity, uh, start to you know wake up to the reality that's going on around us. Well, there was a recent book. Um, we mentioned a few minutes ago Alan Dulles, uh, who was so responsible for um, bringing in mind control programs into the U.S. and and uh, and you know rallying up the funding and the resources and uh, um, I mean this was a spellbinder if uh, if you ever if you ever heard of one uh, there were there were guys even after uh, Kennedy had kicked Dulles out of his post in the CIA who were so loyal to him that Dulles was still coming from his home, apparently. Um, But there's a book uh, that recently came out called The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. And um, we carried a, a little review of it, uh, an article on Saad. Actually, a few of them came out. Um, quite a book, apparently. Um, it was written by a David Talbot, uh, who is also a, a media uh, guy. Um, in any case, you know, it, it, it looks like so much, you know, unlike the Mufti, blame the Mufti, it, it looks like we can uh, attribute so much of the um, the destructive, uh, psychopathic, viral uh, infusion of, of thinking of Nazi Germany into the U.S. by this one guy, uh, Alan Dulles. Um, he he had some uh, interesting things to say in, in a few interviews he was given about the book. Um this was from an article in Mother Jones, and Talbot says, uh, what I was really trying to do was a biography on the American power elite 
from the World War II up to the 60s. That was the key period when the national security state was constructed in this country and where it begins to overshadow American democracy. It's almost like games, Game of Thrones to me, where you have the dynastic struggles between these power groups within the American system for control of the country and the world. I focused on those elements that I thought were important to understanding him. I thought other books covered that ground fairly well before me, but what they left out was the interesting nuances and shadow aspects of Dulles's biography. I think that you can make a case, although I didn't explicitly say this in the book, for Alan Dulles being a psychopath. They've done studies of people in power, and they all have to be, to some extent, on the spectrum. You have to be unfeeling to a certain extent to send people to their death in war and take the kind of actions that men and women in power routinely have to take. I think he went to the next step. His own wife and mistress called him the shark. His favorite word was whether you were useful, quote unquote, to him or not. And this went for people he was sleeping with or people he was manipulating in espionage or so on. He was the kind of man that could cold-bloodedly, again and again, send people to their death, including people he was familiar with and was supposedly fond of. So um, that's some insight into the mind of this, of this guy who uh, we might consider the father of, uh, of, of all the most nefarious intelligence agencies that we see today. Um. One of the one of the points there that kind of acted as a uh, go-between or bringing in you know this Nazi influence, um, you know, is interesting. But I think we when we look to when we look at like this larger picture of what the U.S. is with the eugenics movement uh, and just the history of the United States uh, in general. It seems that there was this driving force. Um, you know, we we look at Nazism and consider that like the supreme evil. That's the that's the common um, conception of it. But really, you know, where did that come from? And it looks more like like that force was in a way exported out from the U.S., um, grown, and then brought back in. We're gonna. We might have a call here. Let's see if we can take it. Hello, caller. Are you there? Uh, hello. Oh, my bad. Hi. Uh, my, my bad. My bad about this, sir. I was. I, I'm going through some stuff right now. Um, I had to call right back. Okay. Okay. You know, when you were saying that, Shane, how the U.S. is exporting uh, its ideology, its terror. It's uh, essence, really. It's essence. Right? I, I think about Ukraine. How the heck uh, does the U.S. go in there and prop up and support individuals and groups in Ukraine, as they did in 2014, who are more or less Nazis? Nazis. The, the Azov Battalion, right sector. I mean, we see pictures of Victoria Newland with these guys. Uh, these are the very worst elements of Ukraine, and yet this whole kind of uh, this whole alliance uh, 
get such short thrifts in the U.S. and Western media. You know, if that isn't the sign of what you were talking about, mm-hmm. I don't know what is. Yeah, and that seems, I mean, we can see the same thing with uh, terrorism and, and ISIS. You know, they're not called Nazis, but you know, inherently they have the same essence, right? I mean, it, we we're the U.S. is doing this time and time and time again, and uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting example, but it wasn't just about what was happening over in Nazi Germany. You know, these influences be always building within the U.S. Uh, and you know, you just have these leaders who are kind of sitting uh, across the ocean, you know, in in relative uh, relative safety, and uh, just kind of calling the shots. Um, now, when we look at Nazi Germany, uh, the I mean, a lot of it was built from the chaos that happened after um, World War II, World War One. When Germany was devastated, they couldn't pay back the reparations. They had to form a new government, it was the Weimar Republic, and that government uh, was actually. Yeah, they, they created this new constitution, and the constitution was called by some uh, the most democratic constitution ever written. And the uh, the person who created it, uh, he was a relatively unknown lawyer. Uh, he wasn't sure if the German people would accept something so democratic. Um, and it was, he based it on the French and American systems. And when things continued just going south, when people continued to suffer, you know, that created an environment where uh, Hitler was able to rise to power. Uh, people did, many people uh, did. It, it took some years. Initially, you know, he, he, he was kind of laughed at. Um, but when he he there was a period uh close to when he he really did rise in power where he he rose up very dramatically very quickly um and he uh it's it's rather remarkable feat and the partnerships or alliances or whatever you want to call them that he had were likely more responsible for him getting into power than um, than just him himself because he's an idiot. I mean, he was an idiot and you know, he's lazy. Uh, he you know, he basically didn't do any any type of actual work. A lot of uh, credit was given to Hitler for reviving the German economy. He had nothing to do with that. He he didn't have any economic interests or economic uh, ability whatsoever. Uh, he had a Banker, uh, was called hit. Uh, he was called a banker, and his name uh, escapes me at the moment. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Um, well, anyway, so he had he had this banker who he basically created the uh, German mark, and my or had it backed by uh, the U.S. dollar. Uh, Hemmler. Schacht, Schacht. Uh, that was that was the the banker's name, 
And this guy, he was very influential. He had, um, he was close friends with uh, the um, Montague Norman, who was the chief of the Bank of England. So he, he secured, you know, financial assistance from him and um, later on created these uh, metro bills, or um, excuse me, metro bills. And, you know, they began this feverish program of rearmament. And that in itself was the main driver. You know, there's a lot of propaganda about the um, the auto bans, the auto bonds, you know, the, the production and development that that, you know, really drove the the German economy. But, you know, that, that was really limited. Um, Schott, he was pretty much forced out of, out of power uh, in 37. And he was replaced by this guy, Walter Funk. And what, what's interesting about this guy is, so he's the new economic minister, and he devised this plan uh, for, you know, a new Nazi Germany, a German-led European economic community. And he envisioned uh, this, uh, this United States of Europe, uh, where there was a common European currency, there was a, a harmonization of European rates of exchange. Um, there was this agriculture economic order. I mean, there's so there there's all these policies that that he set forth that you can say fell with the Nazi Germany, but were revived and realized uh, in the formation of the European Union. It's just, it's it's striking, and it, it's the um, you know a lot of the the driving forces wasn't just these ideas, but it was also uh, the the structure of you know how the banks operated, uh, the, but the German bank being you know pretty much presiding over all the other banks, and that's pretty much what we see uh, in the EU today. Mm-hmm. So. It's like a strain of that exists today mm-hmm. that grew out of that, mm-hmm. facilitated by Western banking powers, right. and um, and it's all part of the same thing. It's like these these structures that were established out of out of uh, you know, and these are just moneyed interests that um, you know whatever whatever politics exists at the time is just a kind of uh, it's just there. It's just uh, expedient. They'll use that uh, as a means to further their own uh, consolidation of power and to create the structures of power that that serve their purposes. Yeah, so there's certainly a lot here. Um, you know, another component of all of this is it's just the idea that uh, the U.S. still to this day is perpetuating all of the structures that grew uh, its ideological rotation of, uh, of of Nazism during World War in, in the form of Alan Dulles introducing all of, all of the personnel and uh, ideas uh, into the kind of underbelly or shadow government or you know the the real kind of movers and masters of of the U.S. Um, it's like he appealed to the very worst elements uh, in in people 
uh, and there were some who, of course, were attracted to his kind of work, and they formed this nucleus around him. And uh, it's only grown since then. Um, I mean, what we know of the NSA today, uh, it, you know, we joke about it. You know, NSA, I need you. You know, but they really do um, pay attention to everything. Uh, everyone that has an independent mind that might not be sub- subjected to fluoridation or who said something political or who's an independent thinker. Uh, uh, you know, the laws that have just come on the books uh, about the <clears throat> the bulk uh, aggregation of, of phone calls and data that's been ruled um, just unconstitutional, uh, all of that's going to be ignored by these guys because they have so much power. Uh, they will continue their their work. They will find ways to to do what they do. Um, they'll use other countries' intelligence apparatuses to do it. Um, I mean, you have to you have to think. What have they actually done? What do we know uh, that they've done that's constructive or productive? Silch, shit, nothing. Uh, they they haven't stopped any terror that we know of, or they would have been uh, touting and, and blowing their horns about it. Uh, they exist. Um, basically to keep tabs on us uh, to to know who they have to think about um, and to protect their own from they exist just for themselves they they're they're revolving doors uh, they go in and out of private industry um, you know to security firms and to military industrial firms and they they build new software and and new ways of, of uh, assessing so-called threats um, and listening to chatter, it's all bullshit. It's all about you and me. And, um, and when you think of the trillions uh, of dollars, we're talking trillions here, folks, of dollars uh, that have gone into uh, the, the feeding of uh, organizations like this, uh, and the CIA and the various non-governmental organizations connected to the U.S. State Department uh, and and the military-industrial complex that's building uh, crappy planes and has bloated uh, you know, uh, police departments and, and bases uh, that cost many millions of dollars in the Middle East that that, that have uh, you know shit dripping from the ceiling and that can't be used all. It's all this this kind of uh, wasteful, monstrous um, exertion of control. Uh, where could all of these resources been going? Uh, where could all of this taxpayer money uh, be going? I mean, we could we could literally. I'm not even being dramatic here or or rhetorical. The U.S., uh, the planet for for that matter, could be a freaking paradise if not for the people that uh, that exist to feed off of the energy and and the lives of so many others that's what we're looking at that's that's the world that Alan Dulles and people of his ilk have have born or who you know allowed to facilitate and that's why we're seeing uh 
we're seeing 140 Parisian, innocent Parisian people getting killed. Uh, that's why we're seeing 11 million Syrian refugees, um, homeless, uh, you know, finding a, a safe haven somewhere, anywhere. That's why we're seeing uh, Russia, which could have which could have been spending a lot more of its time developing itself after the U.S. has been trashing it and undermining it for decades. Uh, that's why it has to pour in all of its energy and resources into uh, countering all of the bullshit that we've seen in Syria for the past two years to such terrible effect. Uh, you know, this is, this is, you know, if you find words, you know, you, you think about travesty and justice, uh, but uh, really, I mean, how do you, if you really think about the implications here, you know, what words can you use to describe what, what it is we're seeing? Evil. I think President Woodrow Wilson had some words that might shed a little bit of light on this. He said, since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. And then after signing the Federal Reserve Act, he said, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world, no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction, and the vote of the majority, but the government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. So, question is... And he was talking about this in, in the, like, 19... Right. Yeah, 1919, yeah. I think, or 1918 yeah. was when the Federal Reserve Act was signed. I mean, the dullest of the world are the devils we know. Mm. Yeah, and there's many that we don't know. Exactly. And when we're looking at words or ways of trying to describe you know, what this is, we can call it Nazism, we can call it fascism, um, but really, you know, there's this underlying force that's the same, this essence that's the same, and it's this psychopathic reality that they've foisted upon us. And what kind of world has that created? What are the conditions that people live under when we're living in this psychopathic reality? You know, we're separated from each other so massively. Our, our, our property is not our own. Children right our children's rights. We don't we parents don't have any rights so really. Our money is not our own. Even our work. The labor that people put in into something that ideally would be something that you love, you know, is taken for war. You know, all all these things, they're a manifestation of this psychopathic control system that dominates us 
you know, even when you get down to the most intimate parts of our being, our thoughts and our emotions, even those are taken from us. Even those are, we, we're, for, we're forced to have these thoughts that come from these psychopathic elites. Our thoughts are not our own. So, you know, are, are, are there ways to, to navigate through this, to, to move beyond this, you know, this, this propaganda? Well, I think the first thing, and it seems to be the biggest thing in, in, in the terms of having a bias, is that we think that most people are like us, and I think that extends to our leaders. I've heard it thousands of times from family members and friends that they give people like Obama the benefit of the doubt. They really are acting out of great interest because I cannot fathom doing that to another human being. And that's the biggest hurdle, I think, is that we project our our level of conscience or our own good natures mm-hmm. onto our, these leaders. When the facts show that they're not that way, they just cover it up. Mm-hmm. So we can keep believing that and watching Dancing with the Stars and eat our Wheaties and enjoy the life we have. Um, just to keep ignoring it um, somehow. Well, they they point the finger. You know, it's uh, this uh, this group over there or that group over there, and, and people take accept it. Yeah. Because it's harder to face uh, the the ugly uh, the ugliness you know within our own borders, so to speak, uh, than it is to you know it, it's easier to to it's that willful blindness. Yeah. Something that you brought up earlier um, that I wanted to, to mention, um, when you think about what your average human being is up against, let's just say they wanted to know the truth. Let's just say they wanted to know, okay, with diet, fluoride, media, all the things that prevent them from doing that. Um, you know, I read, I'll talk to someone, like I had a coworker, she's got a textbook case of gluten and you tell her, oh, I'm not giving up, you know. You take and extrapolate that out to other bigger issues mm. where people just don't want to deal with it. Um, do we really have the government we deserve? I mean, is our government, I mean, Nazi Germany was a reflection of the people of Germany at that time. Snapshot, right? Is our government thought of, of we the people here in the U.S.? Our majority, let's just say. I mean, do we really have the government we deserve? I don't know if it's a snapshot. I think it's more like a projection. Maybe. Well, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, you know, if if collectively we're not taking the responsibility to rule ourselves uh, with justice and and morals and and real values, um, especially knowledge and and knowledge, you know, we're kind of abdicating our own uh, sovereignty as individuals, as humans with you know higher uh, connections to to things. Yeah. Um, so is there an element of that? Yes, I think there is. Um, and that's what the controllers know, which is exactly why they fluoridate our water and they propagandize us and they give us gluten and, and do, you know, any number of other things that, uh, that keep us, uh, connected from our own, um, humanity, humanity, responsibility, yeah. Well, I think the other thing that we need to always keep in mind is that there are layers, and there's the surface layers, and then there are the layers beneath that that 
reinforce each layer above it. Um, we are we are the outermost layer. We are the the group to be controlled. So, you know, it's it's always the wheel within the wheel within the wheel, and we just don't know what all those parts are. But we're learning. We're learning. Well, I did want to just get back to, um, you know, an earlier point when uh, Corey, our caller, uh, spoke. You know, there was a, a sense of uh, hopelessness about the whole situation that, um, you know, I think we all can identify with. Um, but, you know, let us take heart a little bit. Uh, we have a one man and a team in the form of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin who seems to be several steps ahead of the empire, uh, the new Fourth Reich, um, in its geopolitical designs. Is all powerful and all no. The guys, uh, I don't think he would have gone into Syria, uh, of Syria, without anticipating a great deal of happened and what is likely to happen. So we can we can cheer him on a bit. Hope that he stays the course of uh, justice uh, as it appears that he's doing and uh, and take heart that there's someone someone uh, in the in the world of leaders uh, that sees things as they are and who has the intelligence and the balls uh, to take a stand and uh, I just look forward to the U.S. getting further and further and further exposed for all of its lies and uh, all of the evil that it's been perpetrating. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Um, it does feel hopeless sometimes. Uh, sometimes, yeah, and it is. Um, it is a very good thing to have uh, a leader of conscience that you can look to, you know, for some small glimmer of hope. Um, but at the same time, too, you know, if you have that of hopelessness, you know, that kind of comes, I think, with um, the larger goal of just wanting to see the truth of what's happening in the world. And you know, who knows if uh, that can act as a driving force uh, to keep looking and keep keep looking at this um, with these horrible things. You know, it's um, we can utilize those emotions, um, utilize them to connect with one another, to talk about what's going on. Um, and to you know try to serve as a purpose for healing our own wounds you know it's uh it's not a it's not a pretty picture for you know what we see um 
but I think we can find uh, some hope, um, not just with Putin, but you know, with um, with others that who might see the same types of things. Um, I mean, that's really one of the few things that drives me forward. Well, that there are others that you know who do want to see the truth, no matter how like horrific the, the it is. The Tulsis and the Rohrbachers and is that kind of who you're talking about? No, I'm I'm talking about you guys. Oh. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, it's it's I think very much the more you know, the less you are a victim. And you know, what's even worse is not even knowing you're a victim. So I think there's there's progress on certain fronts and certain people. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the truth perspective brings a little bit of less victimization to all of you out there. Hopefully, yes. Um, at the same time, you know, we're we're kind of lucky in that we have this uh, outlet, this medium to to share what we see and what we think is true. And um, you know, I just think it it's to be encouraged among everyone. Uh, to share the truth in the ways that are uh, the ways that you can. Um, you know, we're living at a very special time, and uh, and who knows if that one tweet or Facebook comment or uh, reposting of something uh, isn't the one thing that kind of leads to a tipping point in some direction uh, that is supportive of of the truly constructive things um, that we'd like to see happen in this world. Um, so everyone's a part of this. Everyone's connected in some way or another. Uh, and uh, don't give yourself short thrift. Don't, uh, don't underestimate that one thing that you can do um, uh, that can connect you to uh, something that's good. It's a butterfly effect. Well, on that note, folks, I think we're going to bring this uh, this show to a close. I'd greatly like to thank our caller, Stephen, for his comments. Uh, Corey as well. Thank you, Corey. And uh, to all our chatters, of course, and, um, and everyone here today in the studio. Um, don't forget to tune in to Behind the Headlines tomorrow at 2 p.m. Uh, I have a feeling that they're going to have uh, to say. And, uh, of course, there's the Health and Willow next week at, uh, at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, you know, these are the people that inspire us. Uh, they do this week in and week out, and uh, they're consistent and um they're putting out some very good information. So anyway, uh, thank you all. We'll see you next week. And until then, be well and stay safe. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank you.